Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Markus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this episode, we talk to Rod Brooks, who is the director of MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and Panasonic Professor of Robotics. Rod Brooks is also Chief Technical Officer and Board Member of iRobot, a 120-person NASDAQ-listed robotics company, which is producing the extremely successful Roomba vacuum cleaner robots, the well-known PackBot military robots, and most recently, the Vero pool cleaning robots. Rod Brooks' work has been very influential and led to a fundamental shift in research in artificial intelligence. He has argued strongly against symbolic processing approaches to creating intelligent machines and instead stressed the importance of interactions with the physical world. He has published papers and books in many different fields, including model-based computer vision, path planning, robot assembly, active vision, autonomous robots, micro-robots and actuators, planetary exploration, artificial life, humanoid robots and compiler design. He has also starred as himself in the Errol Morris movie, Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, named for one of his scientific papers. Welcome to Talking Robots, Rod. Well, thanks very much. I'm uh, glad to be here. Uh, in 1986, you published the first in a series of papers that led to a fundamental shift in artificial intelligence uh, and robotics. What was the state of robotics and AI at the beginning of the 80s, and what was the essence of your proposition? Well, I had worked um, as a junior graduate student with Hans Maravec at Stanford University. In 1979, he had a mobile robot called the Cart, which um, would uh, navigate across a crowded room. Uh, we, at midnight, when most people had gone home, I was uh, you know, the junior guy who helped get things physically set up, but it was all his software. And for six hours, using the mainframe computer with no one else using it, the robot would move about one meter every 15 minutes, and... Uh, and this very large room would get to the other side if things went well by 6 a.m. Um, after that, I, I worked in robot assembly for a while, and I tried trying to deal with errors in assembly. And as I tried to f follow the approach that people were using, I was getting more and more detailed uh, world models, trying to model the uncertainty, measure the uncertainty. And it just got more and more difficult to do even simple things, like put a peg in a hole. And I was sort of stuck in a family situation uh, with no one to speak to because my wife uh, spoke uh, was with all her relatives speaking their native language and I was uh, stuck in, in southern Thailand uh, sitting by myself day after day watching insects, um, ants do stuff and, and mis lots of mosquitoes flying around and I thought they didn't have very big nervous systems but they were much, much better at what they were doing than our robots could be, uh, even you know, with big mainframe computers. Um, so it, it occurred to me we must be doing something wrong, and the, the realization was we didn't need to model the external world internally in the robot or in the insect, because the world was still there. We, we could sense it as we were going and use the world as its own model. And we talked to Rolf Pfeiffer just a few weeks back, and he said that the behavior-based approach that you then introduced in uh, your paper in 1986 led to what he called probably the biggest change in the history of artificial intelligence. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about this? What is behavior-based robotics? 
Well, in, in a behavior-based robotics, instead of looking at the problem and, and having perception, build a world model, and then a reasoning system, reasoning about what was going on, and then deciding on a next action, and assuming that the next action would change the world in the way it was modeled, and then acting in the world. Instead, we sort of followed a, a sort of cartoon version of, of uh, evolution, where there were very tight connection between sensing and acting to a very simple behavior. And then we'd add another layer on top of that, which also connected sensing to action to do an, to do an additional behavior. And we laid those behaviors on top of each other, much as, you know, in a, in a Scientific American sort of article, one would talk about evolution of being new capabilities added over time to a brain, to an evolving brain in some creature. So everything was very tight between sensing and action, so we didn't need a lot of computation to deal with more complex worlds. So the very first robot that I applied this to uh, was a, you know, a, a trash can, inverted trash can robot to, on wheels, cylinder, to walk, move around in an environment. And where previously the robot had, the ro people had been having the robots model the world and then plan internally how to move, and as a result, they, they only dealt with static environments because it took so long to compute the model that, they, that if the world changed, that, that, they'd have to start again. This robot, from the very first day, um, worked in an environment full of people and reacted to people uh, because it just uh, sensed with its sonars what was around it, uh, took uh, close-by obstacles as something to avoid and applied a vector to the robot and would, a force vector and would move away from things. Then on top of that, trying to get to some place would be a, another vector uh, of attraction, but uh, the repulsive uh, fields from, from people around it would, would change its behavior, and it would uh, follow pretty much a minimum energy path in a constantly changing world. So you talked about vectors controlling this robot. Uh, so that's kind of the control part. Now I'm wondering, how does this behavior-based robotics approach affect hardware design? Well, in the in the early days, um, it, it, when there wasn't much uh, in the way of computer power that one could have on board, we very much had to had to get by with minimal sort of processing. So instead of processing a uh, uh, a whole image, we'd try, try and project out what were the critical things one needed in order to solve the problem. So uh, imagine a robot that's living in a world with flat floors and a camera pointed slightly down on the head. Um, and there are two objects out in the field of view of the robot. The further one away appears higher up in the image. So rather than trying to compute the actual distance to the objects out in the world, which involves knowing a lot about the geometry of the camera and maybe a lot of processing, instead just compare the height in the image of an object to some threshold. And if it's closer than the threshold, if it's lower in the image than some threshold, then we, the designer, know that that object must be pretty close by, so maybe the robot should take account of it. So instead of now processing the whole image to figure out everything that's out in the world, you just need to look at the bottom of the image. Is there any stuff there that's uh, inhomogeneous, um, or does it all look like a smooth floor? And if there's just a smooth floor, that's what you, you, you can go ahead. If there's something in the bottom of the image, then you better process it and respond to it. So it's very much about minimizing the, the uh, sensory processing in order to achieve some, some behavior. And insects certainly seem to have used that strategy in their evolution. 
And when we look at humans, we see that actually humans use that sort of strategy a lot too. We don't like to admit it to ourselves though. So how do these behavior-based principles extend from insects to humans? Well, there's some great work done at the at, uh, University of Rochester where um, uh, people uh, uh, looked at, uh, the researchers looked at how uh, uh, people uh, would, l they gave them a task of, of uh, a set of Lego blocks that were arranged in a certain way, reproducing that set of Lego blocks in, an, in another place. So there was the, the uh, model set of blocks, there was a pile of random blocks and that they were going to use to pick up, and a place where they were going to build their reproduction. And um, they noticed that instead of, you know, the, the old AI approach, would you'd think that the person would look at the model, then look at the pile of random blocks, pick out the ones they needed, and, and build the, the reproduction. But instead what they saw was the person would look at the model, look at the pile, pick out one block, put it down, then look back at the model a second time, look at the pile, pick out the second block, etc. So that certainly seemed, okay, the people don't have the whole model in their head. So then they did a virtual version of this on a screen, and they watched the person's eyes, and as the person moved their eyes about, they changed the model. And as long as the model was consistent with what they had partially built as a copy of it, people didn't notice that. They weren't putting that model in their head. They were leaving the model out there in the world. And we do that all the time. We leave the model out in the world, although we like to think that we've figured everything out inside our heads. So that we can apply the same approach as we build even humanoid robots to leave the stuff out in the world as much as possible. So you already talked a little bit about some robots you built. Uh, what are your current research interests and current research projects? Um, we've, I've been building humanoid robots in my research lab for a number of years. Not, by the way, because I think humanoid robots are going to be what populates the world in the future. Uh, it was about exploring human intelligence and um, exploring a world that we humans have built for things with human shape. Um, the, we were working a lot on socially interacting robots for quite a few years. We've just finished one project on that. But the projects I'm really interested in right now are getting robots to manipulate the world. Um, the successful robots that are out commercially are all navigation machines. They navigate around and they do some task as a side effect. Maybe they vacuum the floor, maybe they plow a field, maybe they get a sensor uh, out to some military, militarily relevant site. Um, but they're navigation machines. I think the real uh, uh, use of robots, widespread use of robots, is going to be when robots can touch the world and physically manipulate it. So we've been pushing on manipulation for our robots. You've been talking about manipulation now, and you're the co-founder and the CTO of iRobot Corporation, which is a very successful robotics company, uh, which is also listed on the NASDAQ, and which basically, basically produces personal robots, Uh, All pretty much navigation machines, I should point out, though. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so I think the main two, main two products right now of this company is the Roomba house cleaners and the battlefield assistance. Yeah, the um, explosive ordnance disposal robots go going out after improvised explosive devices. And, and in that case, the robot is autonomous or semi-autonomous, getting out to where the bomb is, but then a soldier teleoperates the, the arm to disarm the bomb. Okay, so what I'd be interested in is how, how all this started. How did you start this company? We started this company back in 1990. Colin Angle 
and Helen Grainer, who were then master's students at MIT, and I thought, hey, we've got a bunch of neat technology. We ought to be able to start a company, which we did, but we didn't quite understand that you really needed something that people wanted to buy in order to have a successful company. It took us a long time to learn that. Colin is the CEO, and Helen is the chairman of the company now. We have about 500 employees because we finally figured out that we had to build things that people wanted to buy from us. Neat technology was not enough. Uh, and uh, so the company has been going for almost 17 years. Uh, we tried lots of different things along the way, um, and some were more successful than others before we found a few things that, that really there were markets for that we could produce useful things for. So you need to build something that people... Uh want to buy. Uh, how do you see the market for such things evolving? Well, I think there's, um, you know, we're in for interesting times. If you look at the demographics of um, East Asia, of Europe, and to a slightly lesser extent, North America, um, we see rapidly aging populations. Why it's slightly different in, in North America is there's still more immigration in North America than, than in those other places. So the, the There's, there's a younger set of workers coming in. But even in, in North America, we see a rapidly aging population, so there'll be more older people uh, per uh, working age person. And um, as those older people need more and more services, the working age people will have to be somehow become more productive, or the elderly will, will not get what they need. That will inflate the, the cost of services. So I think there's going to be a real pull, economic pull, for ways of increasing the productivity uh, of those workers in providing services for the elderly. So there's going to be a real pull, I think, on robots to help the elderly in whatever ways that can happen. Now, in Eastern Asia, people seem to be talking about robot companions for the elderly. I, I really don't see that flying in either Europe or North America. I think in Europe and North America, it's more robots doing... Uh, assisting the elderly, uh, providing, uh, enabling them to stay in their homes much longer. So maybe it's, uh, well, cleaning robots is one, one example, but uh, power assist robots that let, let people get their groceries up the stairs into their apartment, uh, uh, help people as they get frailer, but uh, they'll, they'll still want uh, the human, human connection with other people. I don't think we'll see companion robots. Um, Bill Gates wrote in the January 2007 issue of Scientific American that every household will soon own a robot and that we are currently witnessing uh, the birth of a new industry and the situation similar to that of the personal computer 30 years ago. Do you share this vision? I, I share it in, in one way and, and I disagree with him in, in a slightly different way. Um, I share with him that uh, we are seeing robots penetrate the homes. You know, iRobot itself has, has sold over two and a half million home cleaning robots so in the last, since 2002. So in four and a half years, we've gone from essentially zero home robots in the U.S. to two and a half million. That's a pretty significant change in a short time period. Um, and I think we'll see more and more robots. I think we'll see a lot more companies. Certainly, Korea is just brimming with with companies producing home robots right now that they're putting into the market. Japan, the Japanese companies are talking about it and having research programs. They haven't got the robots out onto the market yet. And there's European companies who actually led the way with home cleaning robots, but they came in at too high a price point. Um, so I think we're going to see lots more robots in the home. Where I disagree with, with uh, Gates, Bill Gates slightly is um, making the comparison too much to the PCs Uh, in the early 80s. And why I say that is the PC revolution was really taking something that already existed in the corporate world 
and bring it down to a price that ordinary people could afford. But the sorts of robots we're talking about that work in unstructured environments, they, they don't exist in the corporate world. There aren't big, expensive versions of them, and we're just trying to build cheaper versions. We're also having to invent them at the same time. So that's a, a difference with the PC story. So, but would you say that commercialization is uh, the key to a robot revolution, similar to the revolutions that we've seen for the PC or for the internet or for the mobile phones recently? Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, commercialization and, 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 and coming up with um, robots that can do tasks at a price that people are willing to pay for is the key. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people understand this, and a lot of companies are trying to do that. So I think we'll see some pretty good uh, innovations over the next few years. I think we'll see some, some products that come onto the market from some companies which completely flop because they won't provide the value that, uh, that people are willing to pay for. I think engineers often get uh, fall in love with their technology, um, uh, forgetting, if you like, that, that ultimately it's ordinary people that have to buy consumer products. So let's talk a bit more about the, the future here, what's going to happen next. Uh, where do you see the most critical challenges in addressing those issues, in getting robots commercialized? Well, um, you know, clearly cost is, 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 is the key driver here. And there are certain things happening that, um, you know, in the sensors for navigation, getting... Uh, better navigation. The home cleaning robots right now don't really know where they are. So there's all this slam technology that's out there that's been developed over the last few years, which is quite good, but hasn't quite got down to the cost performance. It's in research labs, but hasn't got down to the cost performance that, that uh, consumers will pay for. So that, that's going to continue in this work on locomotion. But I see four um, research challenges for uh, what I'd call behavior-based robot research is that I think um, as we make progress on any one of them will improve the applicability of robots. And I, I make these four uh, challenges in comparison to what children can, can do. So the first one is object recognition capabilities, at the, uh, uh, the object recognition at the level of a two-year-old child. A two-year-old child can come into a room they've never been in before and uh, you ask them, uh, what this thing is, and they say it's a chair. What's this? It's a table. Uh, uh, what's this? It's a cup. Where they haven't seen a chair that's got that particular shape before or that particular color, they haven't seen a table with that particular number of legs before, but they can generalize and recognize objects. And our home robots right now can't even tell really the difference between a person and a chair. So object recognition capabilities of a two-year-old, anything moving towards that is going to increase the the discernment of the robots uh, greatly. Next level is the language capabilities of a four-year-old child. A four-year-old child can rec you know, listen to people in noisy environments, deal with different accents, deal with uh, conditional sentences, and, uh, and, and relate those words to, to objects in the world um, and, and carry out dialogue. So that's the second challenge. The third challenge is the manual dexterity of a six-year-old child, and I say six-year-old because a six-year-old can tie shoelaces. They can deal with floppy objects and manipulate them. Uh, and a six-year-old child can do pretty much manually every task that you need done in a house and every task that a Chinese uh, um, factory worker does in, in manufacturing all the consumer products of the world. 
And the, the fourth challenge is the social understanding of an eight-year-old child. An eight-year-old child um, introduced into a, a home situation can recognize who the parents are, recognize the dominance hierarchy. They can recognize when someone says one thing and means another, uh, how their actions relate to their words. And eventually we'll want our robots to understand that level of interaction also. So they're the four challenges. And would you say that uh, what you mentioned in the in the beginning of the podcast, man manipulation and interaction, uh, are the key to to addressing these challenges? Well, they're the, they're the two I've chosen to work on. Uh, I think uh, object recognition is equally or more important. It's just not something that... I did a PhD on that back in 1981, which I can look back as a pleasant failure. Uh, but I'm not ready to go back there yet. Um, so I've been concentrating on, on manipulation and social interaction in, in my lab. But these other two, I think, are equally critical. So you mentioned that uh, commercialization and, and the success of, of commercialization is cost-dependent, uh, and it's also technology-dependent. Uh, which fields would you say are the most promising technologically? Well, um, I think uh, sensors are going to become cheaper, and, and um, a nanotechnology, you know, in its generic form, will help there in building sensor arrays. Um, so right now, our, our robots don't have a very good sense of touch, but uh, I think we'll start to see arrays of, of various sorts of touch sensors, which will um, become very useful for For, for robots, we'll see integration of different sensor modalities into sensor arrays. We don't just need to be restricted to um, uh, vision in the, in, the, in, the, in the human visual range, and putting cameras which have a much wider dynamic range together will, will help with that. So lots of sensor capabilities. At the same time, Moore's law, uh, you know, has been, its, its demise has been predicted by many people, uh, but Moore's law for embedded computers has a long way to catch up with Moore's Law for, for mainframes. So even if, if Moore's Law eventually does die in the next 10 years, I think we've got another 25 or 30 years for embedded computers, and we're going to get much more computational power at a low price to put on our home robots. And uh, as computation gets cheaper, you can use computation to replace mechanical precision, because mechanical precision roughly has a constant cost over time, but as embedded computation continues to drop exponentially in price, that's going to increase the performance of what we can do in low-cost robots. 20 years from now, in, in which field will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? Well, you know, 20 years from now, um, uh, I think we're going to, you know, it's going to sneak up on us in multiple ways. So one way, uh, and we're starting to see this, although we don't talk about it as robotics so much, is our cars are becoming smarter and smarter. So 20 years from now, you know, a, ro a car will be a robot. Um, we already see it in, in high-end um, automobiles, the self-parking Lexus, the, um, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, Mercedes, you, all sorts of sensors which are detecting obstacles and, and automatic lane changing, etc. So we're going to see more and more of that driven by safety considerations. Humans aren't very good drivers. We can build much better drivers uh, by gradually adding technology into cars. So, so our, our cars will be robots in, in 20 to 25 years. Um, we'll also have more and more robots in our homes, and we'll also have robots uh, uh, in our military more and more. Um, so I think we're going to see a very broad spectrum of, of robots in our world in the same way that You know, really only 25 years ago, there weren't many computers in our everyday lives. And now 
we all have so many microprocessors you know, in our pockets and on our wrists as we walk around in the world that, it, uh, that it, it's almost un- it would have been unimaginable 25 years ago. So what, what can we expect even further away? Uh, we talked about 20 years now. What do you think will happen after that in 50 years? Well, I, I, let me give a trend because I think there are two things starting to happen already which are uh, interesting. On the one level, we humans are becoming more robotic. Um, we already see well over 100,000 people in the world with cochlear implants. People who had the, the degeneration in their hearing now have chips inside their head connected uh, directly to neurons in their cochlea so that they can hear again. Over 100,000 people now have that. We're starting to see the first few trials are out there with various... Um, uh, vision systems for visually impaired, for people with macular degeneration, either uh, chips in the retina or a a plug-in jack at the back of a person's head and a camera plugging in directly into the V1 uh, area of the brain. And people who are losing sight are willing to do that because they get something, uh, they get some capability back, like, like for the people who've lost their hearing. Uh, we already put, you know, replace hips, we replace uh, 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 other parts of our bodies. More and more of that is going to be connected into our neurons. So we people are going to have more silicon and, and steel or titanium in our bodies, silicon in our bodies connecting into us. And we're going to become, if you like, a little more robotic. At the same time, we're starting to play around with biological materials for our robots. So our robots are going to become more biological and out about 50 years from now, I think we might be sharing some of the parts with our robots. Us and our robots will have a few interchangeable parts. And where it goes after that is too hard to tell. So it's interesting that you mentioned this because uh, in recent years we've indeed seen uh, an increasing number of examples of animal-robot hybrids. For, in, for example, just a few weeks back we talked to Mitin City at uh, CMU who used bacteria with rotating tails as micromotors. And then there's examples of remote-controlled rats and sharks and just recently in China, pigeons. Uh, do you think such hybrids have a future? I think there may be moral outrage at certain of them. You know, we d- just because we can do some things, we don't necessarily do them. Um, you know, uh, we, uh, I think large, large portions of humanity are outraged at the killing of whales. We are capable of killing whales, but many people think that's inappropriate. So I think, you know, there's going to be a fine line on these hybrids. I think uh, at the bacterial level, no one, you know, is going to have much of a moral outrage. At the insect level, earlier this week I saw some pictures of insects with chips put in them in the, in the larval stage who had then turned into flying insects with chips embedded in them, and the researchers are trying to then control where the, the insects fly. They're not quite there yet, but they're certainly merging during that uh, during that uh, stage where the, the insect turns from a larva into a, into a flying insect. You know, and that starts to feel uncomfortable. And when you really, you know, put it in a rat or, say, a chimpanzee, then I think a lot more people are going to be very uncomfortable. So I'm not sure where this is going to end up. In your book, Cambrian Intelligence, you say that, and I quote here, I had recently discovered the joy of Brashley telling everyone that their most implicit beliefs or assumptions were wrong or at least open to question. I'm wondering, can you think of any such assumption that current roboticists might have? Oh, I, I uh, 
you know, there's, a, there's such a fashion uh, about uh, uh, Bayesian inference and statistical methods. You know, the, you know, this is a fad that uh, I, I tell a few of my friends, calm down, this too shall pass. Um, you know, we've seen this historically over the last 30 years where some new method comes along and people jump on the bandwagon. This is going to solve everything. And I think all these Bayesian methods while not mathematically incorrect, are ultimately going to see, be seen to be solving a little piece of the problem. There may be uh, much simpler versions of them than, than, you know, people are in love with writing wonderful equations in LaTeX, uh, and the bigger the equation, the better they feel. Uh, so I think that, that too will pass, and we'll get uh, different, different versions. So, so these statistical methods will, I, I think, be uh, a much smaller part of robotics repertoire in, in 20 or 30 years than currently. And I have two They'll more. They'll be replaced by other fads. Okay, <laughs> great. And I have two more, a little bit more personal questions, maybe. Um, you've invested a lot of time and effort also into robot business alongside your robot research. Why is that? Well, um, I, I, I do want to change the world. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, just writing papers is, is okay, but. Uh, there's other ways to get out and change the world, and and uh, I think sometimes academics can get too in love, as a, uh, you know, with with their equations, and, and 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 do it for its own sake, and it's not going to have any real impact on the world. So, so I I'm, I'm interested in, in in getting stuff out there and changing the world. It keeps me honest in some ways, but I also then like to to speculate about how we can change our research uh, agendas also. So maybe I'm just a you know. I don't have a, a, a long concentration span. I want to do lots of different things all at once. Uh, and to conclude, um, one last question. Uh, you told us in the beginning you, you had your epiphany in Thailand uh, where you thought about, looked at insects and thought about behavior-based robotics. Uh, have you ever repeated your Thailand experience? No. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm currently director of the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, which is an 830-person lab, but only until June 30th. And on June 30th, I'm going on 14 months leave. Um, so uh, uh, my pl my my plan is to uh, is to think deeply about things, and and maybe I will come up with something new, or maybe I'll I'll uh, just uh, find out that I that I that, that you know we only get lucky once in our lives. So I think we all have a lot to look forward to. Uh, thank you thank very you. much, Rod, for joining thanks. us here on Talking Robots. Th thanks very much for doing this. This is great fun. This concludes our Talking Robots episode with Rod Brooks from MIT's AI Lab and iRobot Corporation. He's given us an overview of the development of robotics since the 1980s and made some interesting predictions for the future. This podcast also concludes my role as a host. After 17 Talking Robots interviews, I will now focus my energy on the final months of my PhD thesis. As of the next episode, the interviews will be conducted by my good friend and colleague, Sabine Howard, whose voice most of you will find quite familiar. And without giving away too much, I can already say that she has an impressive lineup of guests waiting for you. Talking Robots has proven a big success with over 25,000 downloads and an average of more than 1,500 listeners per episode. I would like to thank our audience for joining me and our numerous guests on Talking Robots. Special thanks also go to Dario Floriano, for his great idea to start this podcast and his help and his support. To Daniel Marbach for the nice web layout and most importantly to Peter Durr who's been running this podcast with me. 
for the sound sound, for sharing my excitement, and for making everything work. I'll now join our large and growing audience in looking forward to the next episode of Talking Robots. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.